welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thanks for joining us for our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. In it, Paul gets very personal about his own shortcomings, and he comforts the believers in Corinth. But he also teaches us that by embracing our own weakness, we are able to experience God's strength. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in. Well, if you want to take a moment, uh, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be at verse 1. Um, while you're getting there, I just, again, want to remind you to continue to be praying for Mary and Ryan and their children, Marcus, Roman, and Isaiah, again, as they take the next few weeks away to, to grieve the loss of his father. Also, Lord, to seek the Lord for comfort as it relates to um, their daughter, Bertie, and the Lord would intervene. If at all possible, the Lord would intervene and bring that child home. Amen. Amen. So let's continue to diligently lift them up in prayer. If you have found your place to 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry. Second, did I say 1 Corinthians earlier? I think so. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you stand with me as we read God's word together. I'm reading from the New American Standard, the 1995 edition. So maybe yours reads just a little bit different. But as Paul continues to write to the believers, the congregation there in Corinth, he says this to them, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betroth you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin." But I'm afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. You may be seated. Now, we are continuing our study um, in 2 Corinthians and remembering that this is a letter from Paul, as as I said earlier, from Paul to the gathering of believers there in this church in the city of Corinth. And it's a continuation of his, really, of his first letter and also a second letter which we don't have and now had this third follow-up letter, and it's, it's corrective. He's, he's trying to bring about a change in the church because of his concerns about things that he's heard from others. And so he follows this up now, and he's kind of tying up all the loose ends that he has concerns about. Now, as we consider the message Pastor Ryan gave two weeks ago, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 through 18, he entitled that message, Assessing the minister and the ministry. I just wanted to share these these things that I took away. I think they're pretty true to his outline. But these things that I took away that the Lord was speaking to me in my role, not just as a pastor, but 
perhaps even more importantly, as a husband, as a father, and as a member of the community, both of believers and non-believers. But these seven things are what stood out to me and are from, I believe, from his sermon. It says, spiritually mature leaders reflect Jesus. They reflect Jesus, not themselves. Spiritual mature leaders build up others. Again, not making much of themselves, but making much of others. Spiritual mature leaders lay down their lives. They serve, they give. And again, this is not just, we're not just talking about ministry within the church. We're talking about all ministry. Our first ministry, if we are married people or as um, parents. Spiritual mature leaders are consistent in character. We are not two different people when we're one at church and one at home or one at work or some variation, but it's consistent across all aspects of our lives. Spiritual mature leaders do not compare themselves with others. This is a challenge for us, isn't it? I think if we're all honest, we tend to do this, some more than others. But who are we to compare ourselves to? Christ and Christ alone. He's the standard. Spiritual mature leaders stay in their lanes. I really like this one because this is an easy one for me to depart from. You know, I, I think we can often quote that, that verse, you know, Paul says, I become all things to all men that I might win some to Christ. And we think, okay, that means I got to do everything and I got to do it super well, right? And that's just not true. As, as, as he wrote in, in, earlier in a let, the let, one of the Corinthian letters, he said, we're all members of the body. We each have a role to play, right? We have a function, one that he has gifted us for. We're not all the ear, we're not all the eye, not the hand, not the foot. We each have a part to play. And when we do that well, the whole body functions well together. So we need to stay in our lanes. That area where God says, this is where I desire. Do you, have, do you know where that lane is? It's a big question. And then last, spiritually mature leaders boast in who? Who? Yes, we boast in Jesus. We should be excited about that. We should be excited about the fact that we have a leader, the king, who is perfect in every way and will never, ever disappoint us, ever. He will not fail us, amen? He is consistent in all areas of life he boasts in the Father. He said he came to serve and not be served. And he was willing to go the full length and lay down his own life, wasn't he? Why were these things important to Paul and why are they important for us today? Again, He's addressing the body of believers there in Corinth. He's concerned about their spiritual compromises and particularly the rising questions about his authority as an apostle or a spiritual father. They had begun to look to other men who had elevated themselves within the church. 
that they were the opposite of those seven things. Paul describes people who have infiltrated the church and set themselves up as the eminent, most eminent, or super apostles. And he uses that tongue-in-cheek a bit. As Paul points out, their supposed spiritual maturity is, in fact, betrayed by their worldly character, which opposes those seven hallmarks of a spiritually mature leader or believer. The message for you and me is to look for and to follow leaders who display the heart and character of Jesus in their words and in their actions. For us to be those kind of leaders in our sphere of influence. Now, you might be a young person here to say, well, I'm not married. I'm not, um, I don't have children. No, you have a sphere of influence. Every person does your classmates, your siblings, you have a sphere of influence. Every one of us does. And God desires for us to be that kind of people that would look and point others to him in every place that he sends us. As I said before, a couple of weeks ago, it's not just when we're at church or not just when we're with our group of Christian friends. It's not even when we're in our own communities. It's wherever we would go, vacation or otherwise. But God says, you are the light of the world, not of the church, right? Not of, well, just at my Bible study. No, every place that he would send us. And this leads us to Paul's opening words now in chapter 11, verse 1. And he says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. In essence, Paul is saying, since it appears you are putting up with the nonsense of these so-called apostles, would you put up with a little nonsense as I explain myself? He says, you're willing to do that for them. Let, give me a little latitude now. And, and this nonsense, this foolishness that he's talking about is more fully communicated later on in this chapter where Paul begins to boast about his human accomplishments. But for now, he wants, us to, he wants to communicate his affection and his love for the believers in Corinth. And he moves now to verse 2. And he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Now, in, in this verse, hopefully we can hear the heart of a father uh, towards, towards a daughter, his daughter, who is engaged to be married. This is the word picture he's trying, for, trying to develop. Most fathers would do and will do all they can to protect their daughters from unworthy men. Amen? As dads, like, don't mess with my daughter. If you make her cry, I'm going to make you cry. <laughs> right? And they want to see their little girl marry a man who will lead and protect 
and guide her into the ways of the Lord. Just a little rabbit trail here. Sorry, Colleen, if you're here already. But Colleen teases me about uh, my lunch with Carlos uh, when he asked about marrying Colleen. And she teases me about how easily I kind of just said, yeah, that's great. How I approved so quickly. And I said, but however, in my defense, honestly, he was still walking around with all of his parts when he got there. So clearly he must have been doing something right before he got there. Listen, I had already observed his character. Diligently. Trust me. <laughs> Lunch was just a formality. <laughs> Back to our passage. <laughs> In verse 2, Paul does even more than to compare himself to a good father. He takes it a significant step further and he compares himself to God the Father. This is why he uses the words godly jealousy. Now, this word jealousy, I think when we read it, and this is certainly true of myself, is when I've read this over the years, I have this instant connection with the word jealousy that, that feels more like envy. Is that you? Is that you this morning? It's like, oh man, it's like when I read that God is a jealous God, it kind of makes my skin itch a little bit. Uh, when he says this word, I can only imagine that he is pointing them back and they, as believers perhaps, for the Jewish believers, they're thinking back to Deuteronomy 4.24, where it says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And again, it begs the question, what does he mean by that? Well, we need to understand the difference between jealousy and envy. Jealousy, this is from the 1895 Webster Dictionary. I encourage you, you can actually go online, you get a little shortcut on your desktop computer and put it there. I love using it because, and you can even go back to the 1828 version of it, I believe. But I love it because it has so many biblical applications within that dictionary. But this is what Webster wrote in that version. He said, exacting exclusive devotion, intolerant of rivalry. Now here's the contrast when we think of jealousy but we really are thinking envy it's chagrin at another's excellence or good fortune an abject an object of envious feelings or to covet now bear with me for just a moment during an episode of um oprah winfrey's and, and, and uh, bear with me stay <laughs> stay with me <laughs> Oprah Winfrey show uh, A New Earth, which is really promoting, if you're not aware of it, promoting New Age religion. That's what it's doing. But in, in, and this is around, I think, March 2014, on her own network, which I, is funny, it's OWN, O-W-N, her own network, the Oprah Winfrey network. But how at age 27, 28, she recalled her decision to abandon belief in the God of the Bible and Christianity and attending church because of something she heard in a sermon by a young pastor where he quotes this, that God is a jealous God. And she couldn't understand 
And these are her words, why God is jealous of me. Now, but I want you to, I mean, it's, it's a little bit sad and humorous, but I want you to hear, hear the words, God is jealous of me. The implication is not the correct definition of the word jealousy. She is equating jealousy with envy, envious. In actuality, the problem she encountered during that sermon that she heard at 27 or 28 years old was rooted in her ignorance of biblical definitions and context. Again, she was equating jealousy with envy as if God saw something in her that he wanted for himself. Now, careful, we can be a little, we can be a little humorous about that, but sometimes I think we can put ourselves in that circumstance. That if God just knew how great I am, he would do something with me amazing. Right? We chuckle because I think we've all done it. Or we've, or if we looked at this person, like if only that person would get saved. Man, what God could do with them. But he's more concerned with what? The content of their character, which flows from their heart. To be clear, you and I have nothing God needs. Amen? I'm like, sorry if I'm popping your bubble this morning. <laughs> we have nothing he needs. He is eternally self-sufficient and self-satisfied. However, in his glorious kindness and grace, he created us and imparted his image to us and found us to be, as he quotes in Genesis 131, very good. The crowning achievement of his creation. And he says, I want to have a personal, intimate relationship with you. And he knows us more than we know ourselves. And certainly more than we will ever present to the world at large. And yet, he still likes us. More than that, he loves us. That should shake us a bit. That is profoundly more than we can imagine. It is because we are his most unique creation made in his image that he established a relationship with us as our creator and savior. As Hebrews 1.3 says, the one who sustains all things, that includes you and I, he sustains us. By his powerful word, he has the right now to require us, to even command us, come and seek me. You will find love. To command us with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength to seek him. Because here's the truth, Acts 17, 28 for in him, and only in him, we move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. We live and we move. 
Our very breath is dependent upon him. Do we agree with that? And yet he wants this intimate relationship with us. Sadly, throughout human history and biblical history, we have demonstrated our desire to rebel. I've done this, you've done this, to rebel against the one who made us, offers us salvation, and sustains our very lives. God is not jealous of us. He is jealous for us. Uh, going back to that earlier definition, intolerant of rivalry. On the day of salvation as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, did we not agree to willingly exchange his life for ours? This is why Paul would say, I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. That is one who says, I know this character of this individual. I do not have the means to control my own life, care for myself and for my family, so I willingly sell myself into their servanthood for eternity, forever, until I die. Did we not agree to that? Then how is it that we could stand before him and say, no, I have other affections. And yet I do. This is a wrestling match, I think, for all of us, if we're honest. We have things that command our attention. And some of them aren't necessarily bad things. I had the pleasure of going out and, with a friend of mine, Brian Early, and fly fishing. I love to fish. If you've been in my office, I've different fishing paraphernalia on the wall. But I can easily, and some of you can attest to this, I can easily become obsessed with it. <laughs> My wife would tell you that. It's not a bad thing, but we can make it a bad thing. And we will create a rivalry for our affections. God is not jealous of us. He is jealous for us. He created us to be in a relationship with himself, and he will not share our affection with anyone or anything. This is at the heart of what Paul is telling the congregation at Corinth and to you and I. They have cast off their affections for God and the things of God for the affections of mere human beings who pretend to be of greater importance than the one who died for them. So we're to go back to Deuteronomy 4.24 when it says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. That ought to make us stop for just a moment and consider what that means. When it says he is a consuming fire, this is in the context of Moses' last words to Joshua and the nation Israel before he dies, and they enter the promised land without him. Because of his disobedience, and we might read those passages as, well, he just struck a rock in anger. God could forgive him. Yes, God can. 
But for whatever reason, God said, yes, I forgive you, but there is still consequence. And the consequence is you will not enter the land. If Moses, the one destined and selected and chosen to lead the people of Israel, was not spared, and this is what he's telling the people, if I was not spared, what makes you think he will spare you for your disobedience? Now, I, I, I want to be careful that we're not rolling into the area of condemnation. Because the scripture tells us that there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But just because there is forgiveness doesn't mean there's removal of consequence. There are things in my life, in my marriage, because of choices that I made early in my marriage that I still reap the consequences and they serve as a healthy reminder. Don't do that again. (laughs) Some of you might carry those consequences as well. You see, because of his disobedience, Moses was not allowed to enter the land. God's jealous fire consumes all of a man or a woman. His fire consumes all of a man or a woman. Nothing that's untouched, left untouched by his power and authority. And we might think, well, I've got that tucked away. And that's my little piece of my life. Good luck with that. Jonah said, there is no place I can go that I can hide from you. No place. He removes every nook and cranny and corner and closet. Do you think you and I will escape the justice of God? Do you think you and I will escape the kindness of God? And I use that word very intentionally because his kindness is disciplined sometimes. Certainly, as his children, we know his grace and mercy, but this does not negate his justice nor his discipline for those he loves because he says if he does not discipline us, we are proven to be illegitimate children, not his children. And he says, I can't do that to you. I must remain consistent in my character. So as a father to a daughter, Paul says he will not stand idly by and put up with such foolish behavior out of love, godly love, godly jealousy. He must intervene as their spiritual father in the faith. He introduced them to one groom, that is Christ. As a good and loving father, how can he stand by and watch them give their affections to anyone but the groom? Some of this is beautifully captured in the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. So this is just like the letter to the Corinthians. This is a letter to a congregation of believers in a church there in Ephesus. And it says in verse, or chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just all as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water through the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, 
having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's a good dad. The Lord will reveal himself to all mankind and to those who acknowledge and surrender to him. He, with great kindness and grace, then betroths us, engages us, linking us forever with his son. And nothing, nothing, no one can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus as it says in Romans. This name, this heritage, is something to be guarded and protected. Now, there have been times in history when a family name was something to be honored and protected. And raising our children, this is something we kind of wanted to pass along in small ways, not maybe not to the extent that it was in older times, but we wanted to instill in them a, a sense of pride and honor um, in, the, in the Smith name. And when they were small children and they asked, hey, why, why do we have to clean a campsite? This is one of my picky things. Maybe it's for you. Why do we have to clean this campsite better than we found it? Well, because that's what Smiths do. Why do we have to say Mr. or Mrs. to these you know, people that we know? Well, that's because that's what Smiths do. We wanted them to be proud of their heritage and to see it as something to guard and protect and to stand perhaps for it in the face of opposition. However, as as, as important as we, we wanted to impart that to them, the greater thing we wanted to impart to them was to, uh, their, for their understanding to be that the greatest honor is to be called a child of the living God. To have their names written in the Lamb's book of life and to be related to God through Jesus, to be a Christian and not in our modern day version of that word, to be a Christ follower, a follower of the way. We wanted that identity to be fully entrenched into every fabric and piece of their lives. Loving parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, brothers, sisters should take this responsibility seriously. They should be, as Paul was to Corinth, guardians of the name and the character of Christ by which they are called. However, there is a little matter of living in a fallen and broken world, isn't there? With an enemy that seeks to devour us and destroy the name we bear. Verse 3, he says, but I'm afraid that... As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now, I, I can imagine Paul writing these words again as, as a father with, with sorrow and maybe perhaps tears as he writes these words to them. I, I, I taught you. 
I prepared you. I poured out my life for you as a drink offering. But somehow it may have not been enough. Despite my most heartfelt effort, you have been deceived into thinking outward appearance and human standards are much more trustworthy than godly character. It's also here that Paul draws a sharp parallel between these so-called super apostles and the serpent of Satan. And I'm sure this wasn't lost on them. As they're reading this letter or they're hearing this letter read, as Eve was deceived by Satan, it appears the believers of the Corinth allowed themselves to be deceived by these self-important, self-promoting liars. How? By the craftiness of the enemy displayed in rebellious people. How do you get to that place? It's a series of small compromises, isn't it? No one, no one wakes up in the morning and says, today I'm going to ruin my life. That sounds like a great plan, right? <laughs> going to wreck my marriage, going to leave my job and live on the street. That sounds amazing. No, it's a series of compromises, right? One to the next. And if we're honest, every one of us is one or two compromises away from those kind of circumstances. And, and we're even warned, be careful, lest we think we stand, we fall. Simple and pure devotion to Jesus. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about. A few of us attended a pastor's appreciation breakfast um, sponsored by KPDQ on Friday. And the keynote speaker was uh, Darren Mulligan. He's the lead singer from uh, We Are Messengers. If you've listened to radio much, I, for this crowd, yes, you probably do. <laughs> the younger crowd doesn't listen to the radio that, as much. But I, I love it. You know, just selfishly, it was like, oh, what a, that, that amazing, like, thick Irish brogue as he was talking. And it was thick. And he shared a simple but pointed message from 1 Peter 5. His emphasis on the simplicity of what believers are called to be and to do, that struck me. The simplicity of what we are called to be and to do. Like those super apostles that Paul speaks of, you and I tend to make the simple and pure gospel-centered life very complex, don't we? And listening to Darren Mulligan share a bit of his story, story, I was reminded of my own entrance into the family of God. And, and I remember Samantha and I and another couple enjoying lunch together after church and wondering what our lives might be like now that we were following Jesus. I was not a believer when we got married. I wouldn't recommend it for you at all. I would discourage you from entering into that kind of relationship. That's just a separate side note. That one's free. <laughs> yeah. 
But I remember us talking about focusing on a few things. Reading and knowing the words of the Lord. Praying to know him better and serving others out of the overflow of those amazing truths. I remember my friend Gordon and his wife sitting there with us and Joyce saying to Gordon, wouldn't it be great if you became a like your dad, a pastor. Gordon was a pastor's kid who went completely off the rails and he had come to Christ just a month or so before I did. And Gordon says, you know what? Right now, I just got to worry about today. (laughs) Following Jesus today. If that's what he has for me, we'll get there. But today, and that is so true. We make it so complicated, don't we? We make following Jesus like this massive list that we're never going to live up to. This is exactly what was happening in Jesus' day with the religious leaders. It had become so complex. How could you possibly live up to it? Which was actually the point. You can't. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we hear simple truth and wisdom. Ecclesiastes 7.29 Behold, I found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. As a farm kid, I'll be honest, as a farm kid, when I read this one, when I was small, and when I got my first Bible, this is from the Good News Bible. It says, this is all I have learned. God made us plain and simple, but we have made ourselves very complicated. <laughs> Isn't that true? We have made it very complicated. I'm not recommending this movie for you. This is just a clip that I find very humorous. There's some some language in it, so again, don't go look it up. But it it struck me, um, you know, it's cleaned up. And if you watch it on mainstream television nowadays, it's probably not cleaned up. But in 1991, the movie City Slickers. And the movie follows three friends who are kind of trying to figure out their midlife crises, right? So they go out to this dude ranch this working ranch, and they're going to drive cattle across um, a piece of the state and arrive there, and they have real jobs that they're supposed to be doing. And in the movie was one line from Curly as he spoke to Mitch as they're riding now, just the two of them going and gathering up stray cows um, there in in this kind of arid desert climate. And while they're doing this, Mitch is just yammering on, you know, about all kinds of craziness and hypothetical questions about love and happiness, and Curly stops and he says to him, you city folk worry about a lot of stuff. You spend about 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope, and you think two weeks up here will untie them for you. (laughs) None of you get it. You know what the secret to life is? Mitch replies, no, what? And Curly says, Mitch says, your finger? No, one thing, one thing, just one thing, and you stick to that, and everything else don't mean squat. Mitch says, great, what's the one thing? Curly says, you got to figure that out. <laughs> but here's the thing, when, as children of God, we have no such challenge. We do not have to figure out the one thing. 
the one thing that we can stick to that will make everything else in life fall in place. To borrow another cattle rancher phrase, God made it so simple that even a newborn calf knows where to get the milk. <laughs> Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will what? I will what? Give you rest. Come to me. Come to Jesus. And these words stand in stark contrast to the message of those so-called apostles. No, they wanted everyone to come to them, to notice them, to be impressed by them, to serve them, to sacrifice for them. The one thing, that's Jesus. Amen? He is the one thing, the one person who can untangle every knot. Finding him and living for him is not complex nor complicated. The following verse removed the last knot in my tangled rope at age 23. But seek first, this is Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. It's just that simple. Go seek him. What will happen if you seek him? Not a rhetorical question. What will happen if you seek him? You'll find him. What happens if you knock on his door? He'll open the door. I mean, he, does he make it any more clear for us? And simple. Come over to my house. Knock on the door. You'll find me there waiting for you. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Two things. But they can all be combined into one. <laughs> Just love the Lord your God. Go seek him, go find him, and you will find him to be willing and more than able to answer every question, help in any circumstance, give you wisdom that you desperately need. This is what we're supposed to be reflecting to others, that knowing Jesus is our first and foremost desire. It's about loving what he loves first, the word of God. It's about seeking what he sought first, a close relationship with the Father in intimate, persistent, and desperate prayer. I know I've said this before, you know, at the risk of just sounding like a broken record, but if I would start believing the Bible is God's voice in written form, I would be quick to pray, wouldn't I? Quick to talk with him and know what he wants from me. And then and only then I could open that book with trembling expectation and say, Lord, I'm about to hear you speak. Within these pages, I would find him waiting for me, offering me direction for daily living, wisdom for weighty decisions, comfort when my heart is crushed, reasons innumerable reasons for joy and thanks, peace when the world is crumbling, and hope for myself and for others. Amen? 
From beginning to end, I would discover many others. As I read in his word, I would discover many others just like me. And I would discover, as they discovered, the opportunity to encourage, to strengthen, and urge others forward, even as they do with the same for me. Not only this, but I would be reminded that the Spirit of the Lord, the power of the living God, resides in me, with me, at all times. And is able to change me, even when I think change is not possible. And it happens when I just surrender to him. I would discover the purity of helping those in need and knowing and seeing who they are. Paul echoes the heart of God to you and me today when he penned the words of verse 4 nearly 2,000 years ago. And they should serve as a warning for you and I. Verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached or received a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Now, I've read this verse many, many times. And I'll be honest, it's always kind of confused me. Because I think we miss the tone maybe in our trans. Maybe you're reading a different translation. If you are, I think it makes it clear. But Paul is trying to communicate something. It's not like he's congratulating them for what they've done. The letter is a corrective one. This passage is corrective. Instead, he's speaking to Corinthians, to us today, with a, with a fair amount of sarcasm. <laughs> I like the way the ESV put it. He says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you have received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And don't we? Haven't we? Again, I want to be careful. This is not condemnation. But there's a reason that we live in such a screwed up world and we are part responsible because we often abdicate our role in the community, in schools, in local government, state and national government. We abdicate our role even sometimes in our unwillingness to vote. We have a responsibility. I don't, I don't remember who said it, but the, the, he, they, they said um, the only thing necessary for the increase of wickedness is for good men and women to do nothing. We have the power of the living God dwelling within us. Who are we to be afraid of? If God is for us, this is what the word says, if God is for us, who, who in the world could be? It's a sarcastic statement, actually, right? He's like, who in the world could be against you? No one. In our fast food movies on demand in the American idol world, we as followers of Jesus too often put up with the things of the world readily enough, even in the church. We are too often willing to accept or be an example of Jesus who lacks humility, fails to build others up, and wants to be served rather than to lay down their lives to sur and surrender for others. We want a Wendy's biggie bag life. I tell you what I want, 
You make it filling and satisfying. No, or we want a GQ and Vogue life and have all those pesky blemishes airbrushed out so when they appear on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, it looks perfect all the time. My never-ending pursuit of happiness, and I use that word intentionally, I have so complicated my life at times that I often abandon the satisfyingly simple and pure devotion to Christ that I found on the day of salvation. Why? The answer, too, is simple. Because I believed the lie that Eve and Adam believed. God is not enough. God is just not enough for me. Is this true for you? Or maybe you're here today and you've never even experienced that simple and pure life, but you long for it. Either way, there's a simple remedy. 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment. It's, it's simple. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So today we can start fresh. As, as the worship team comes forward, if you'll stand with me. We could start fresh today once again, and we desperately need to, some of us. So I know some of you are here today like, man, I've, this has been a great week. This has been a great month where the Lord has just so clearly simplified my life. But maybe you're, not, you're here and that's not the case. We can start fresh today. And it's not like we have to go back to where we started from. Don't you love that about the Lord? Like we think when we wander off the path, we have to turn around and come back. No, he just cuts a new path from where we were right back to heaven. He just carves through all the nonsense that's ahead and he says, okay, I got you back on track. It's amazingly simple and it's pure. And he desires that for each one of us today. And we will, when we go there, when we start fresh, we will find rest for our souls. Amen? God, we come to you not as people who have got it all together or got it all figured out. Oh, for sure, there are brilliant times, amazing times where we have just simplified that we have discovered the purity and simplicity of just seeking your faith in the morning and at night, in your word, in prayer, and in service to others, and, and it's glorious. But Lord, we, myself included, we so easily are distracted. And we give our affections to another. We create rivalries that cannot stand in your presence. And yet in your gentle kindness, you says, I can free you from that today. Lord, would you open our eyes to see? Like we did on the day of salvation, 
how simple and pure a walk with you can be. And if you're here this morning, and this is not your story yet, that you have come to this morning and said, My, listen, I don't belong to Jesus. I've never surrendered my life to I've never said, I believe that you are the Son of God who came down in human form to live, to die, and was resurrected to pay for my sin. I, I, I'm not there. I've not done that. And I've not surrendered my life to you, Lord. Today, this morning, that could be your fresh start. And if that is the case for you, would you raise your hand? Would you take a huge risk? Actually, according to the word, it's no risk at all. Would you take a moment and say, Lord, I want to live differently. I want simplicity and purity in my life. Would you raise your hand? Would you say, I need you? And for the believers this morning, the challenge is the same. Have we wandered away? Have we given our affections to another? Will you stand with me and raise your hand and say, Lord, I just want purity and simplicity. I just want simplicity in my life because I have made it so darn complex and complicated. And this morning we have people here in the front that would be overjoyed to pray with you. Maybe it's a little challenging to get out of the center section. You have someone standing next to you, I'm certain of it, standing next to you that would gladly pray with you. Say, let's start fresh today for the glory of God, for the purposes of God, for the transformation of our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For service times, location, or even just to learn more about the ministry of Calvary Southeast, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Join us next week as we continue in our study together.